0: ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design.
1: Hello, and welcome to ID the Future. My name is Emily Reeves, and today I will be talking with Casey Luskin, the Associate Director for the Center for Science and Culture. We will be discussing a fantastic resource coming out October of 2021. Welcome, Casey.
0: Thanks for having me on Emily. And yes, the book is titled The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. It's available on amazon.com. And along with William Dembski and Joseph Holden, I'm one of the co-editors and we're very excited about this new book that's coming out.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about who specifically you would recommend this book for?
0: Well, I'd say it's for anyone, whether they consider themselves a person of faith or not, but it certainly does address many issues for people of faith who are wrestling with whether they can fit science into a religious or a specifically Christian or Judeo-Christian worldview. The book addresses many hot topics in the field, such as the origin of the universe, the origin of the earth, the origin of life, the origin of humanity, the existence of Adam and Eve, whether common ancestry is true. And that's just scratching the surface. There are many different topics that are covered in the book of interest to anybody, again, whether they're a person of faith or not.
1: So this book sounds like has some really unique qualities. One thing I've heard is that it's broad in its coverage of science and ID. But yet, it's also a succinct sort of summary.
0: Yeah, I'd like to think so. We have people covering topics all the way from, you know, how do we interact with reconciling scripture with science to the fine tuning of the universe? Or does the Big Bang provide evidence for design? Obviously, we think the answer is yes, and everything in between. But what's great is that each chapter is only about six to nine pages long, and they're very tightly and concisely written, they're well documented written by experts in the field. So you're going to get basically a tight and concise briefing in each chapter on an important question in science and faith. So I think it is true that it's one of the most broad yet concise books on the topic that I'm aware of that's been written on ID.
1: So this book is covering everything from, say, cosmology to the history of persecution in the ID movement. Who are the different authors of those chapters?
0: Well, I'd like to think we have a pretty good all-star lineup of contributors, including well-known ID theorists like Stephen Meyer, William Damsky, Michael Behe, Jonathan Wells, Jay Richards, Douglas Axe, John West, Guillermo Gonzalez, Gunter Beckley, Cornelius Hunter, Michael Egnor, Brian Miller, uh, Walter Bradley, and I have a chapter on the origin of life. Paul Nelson is an author. Many people that are familiar to ID the Future listeners contributed to this book.
1: Now, Casey, you yourself contributed two chapters, one on common ancestry and one on human evolution. Let's dig into that a little bit. Can you start maybe by just defining universal common ancestry and tell us a little bit about what that is?
0: Okay, sure, Emily. So universal common ancestry is the idea that all living things are related. That means that, of course, all human beings are related. But if you go back far enough, then I share a common ancestor with my pet cat. Go back a little bit further. I share a common ancestor with the plant that is growing in my front yard and go a little bit further back even more. And eventually I'll share a common ancestor with every living organism that has ever existed in the history of life, both dead and alive on this planet. So if you go back far enough, then every living thing on the earth is related.
1: Now, I love this chapter because it includes sections on biogeography, the fossil record, phylogenetics, one of my personal favorites, and embryology. You walk through the latest, greatest research in all of these fields, sort of highlighting the evidence from different angles and showing that that doesn't really add up for common ancestry. There are so many great topics here, which is why people should buy the book, but maybe let's start with biogeography. What can you tell us about if this field supports common ancestry?
0: Well, I remember learning about biogeography when I was an undergraduate taking courses in evolution at uh, UC San Diego back at that time. And I remember hearing about this idea that primates had rafted across the Proto-Atlantic Ocean in order to colonize South America. And I thought, that's kind of a crazy idea. I mean, maybe, but like that's not exactly what I would expect to hear from an evolutionary view of biogeography. So years later, when I was out of my undergraduate studies, I decided to just look into it. And I started picking up some books on biogeography, reading them. This was actually in response to some arguments that the National Center for Science Education had made trying to refute the textbook Explore Evolution. If you want to go way back in ancient history of the ID movement, this was probably back around the year 2008, 2009. And I was digging into the topic of biogeography, and I discovered actually This rafting hypothesis is a real thing. So according to evolutionary thinking, there should always be a continuity between biogeographic and evolutionary patterns. In fact, the National Center for Science Education says that this continuity between biogeography and evolution is what would be expected of a pattern of common descent, okay? But what happens when you have organisms that are located in a location on the earth where they cannot be connected to their supposed ancestral population through some kind of a migratory pathway that allows their ancestors to have migrated from their ancestors' location to their current location. Well, that poses a problem for common ancestry. And I talk about a number of examples in my chapter in the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, but I'll I'll highlight one. And that's again, that's the order of primates, because this is the one that sort of got started for me on this topic. So there are Primates are, we'll we'll say monkeys. There are monkeys today in Africa and there are monkeys in South America. And the idea is that monkeys in South America are descended from monkeys in Africa. And the idea is that these old world monkeys somehow gave rise to the new world monkeys. Well, how did the new world monkeys come to exist in South America? There's a problem. South America was an isolated island continent from most of the tertiary, basically from about 70 million years, actually that's going back into the Cretaceous, going back to about the last 70 million years until just recently, South America was not connected to any other continent. And so when the Atlantic Ocean started to open up, basically during the late Mesozoic and in the Cenozoic, eventually South America was this big isolated island, maybe kind of like how Australia is today. So how did the monkeys get from Africa to South America. They basically would have had to have crossed hundreds, if not thousands of kilometers of open ocean in the Proto-Atlantic. And the theory that we can literally read about this in textbooks, in technical papers, in peer-reviewed books, is that they rafted. The monkeys rafted from Africa to South America. And they're not joking. Okay, this is a real hypothesis. Of course, they're not building little boats they're floating usually the idea is that they would float on some kind of storm debris that maybe got washed out into the ocean after some giant hurricane or some big storm and then they just happen to make it all the way across the Atlantic Ocean and of course one of the problems is that mammals especially primates have very high metabolisms right so you've got to have enough food and water supplies on that raft to survive this i would presume you know multi week if not multi month voyage across the Atlantic Ocean to colonize South America. Another problem is it can't just be one monkey that makes the voyage. You got to have multiple monkeys. Otherwise, that one monkey gets there and he or she's got no one to mate with and leave offspring, so they die out, right? Maybe I suppose a pregnant monkey would qualify and then you might have some inbreeding problems there, but at least you could have, if that monkey has gives birth to twins or more than one offspring, then okay, fine. That might work too. So There's a lot of problems aside from just the the on-the-face absurdity of monkeys rafting across the Atlantic Ocean. And it turns out that it's not just monkeys that have this problem. They also have to explain how many other species arrived in South America, such as certain rodents, certain lizards, sloths, certain insects, all of these different species or types of organisms appearing in South America do not fit well with the biogeographical and evolutionary history that is claimed to be true under common ancestry. So this is a real problem for common ancestry.
1: So you do not think that the rafting hypothesis supports or is in favor of, say, common ancestry?
0: Look, I'm not going to say it's impossible. But even the proponents of the racking hypothesis claim that it is, quote-unquote, implausible. Okay, these are not my words. These are coming from experts. And they compare it to winning the lottery. So when your evolutionary model requires you to win the lottery over and over again, these this lottery was won by different species, to me, that's not a compelling explanation. It's not a good explanation. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it certainly is not the kind of explanation that you would expect from a theory that is true.
1: Fair enough. What about the fossil record? I know that's the second topic you address in your chapter. Does that support common ancestry?
0: We don't have to dwell on this too much because I'm sure our listeners are familiar with the fossil record and the problems that it poses for Darwinian evolution and common ancestry. But yeah, it definitely does pose a problem for common ancestry, namely because the fossil record shows a pattern of explosions where new types of organisms appear abruptly throughout the history of of life, not showing any connection to their uh, supposed ancestors through transitional forms and intermediates. The most famous example would be the Cambrian explosion, but I go through quite a few other examples of explosions. In this chapter, Emily, there's an explosion of fish, there's an explosion of birds, an explosion of mammals. I'm just scratching the surface. There's quite a few different explosions. Gunter Beckley really has nailed this one down. In his chapter with Stephen Meyer in the book Theistic Evolution, I think they identify somewhere between 16 to 17 distinct explosions of major types of animals throughout the history of life. Yeah, the fossil record is not showing the pattern of gradual change, showing how species are connected to their ancestors that you would expect from a Darwinian view of common ancestry.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I'm wondering now if we could talk just a little bit about one of my personal favorites, and that would be phylogenetics. Why does phylogenetics not support common ancestry, or does it?
0: Well, I want to say first off, Emily, that you started a journal club at the beginning of 2021 for a bunch of folks who are interested in the topic of phylogenetics from within the ID movement to have conversations about this. And it's been a lot of fun. We have some folks that are pro common ancestry, some folks who are skeptical of common ancestry. And this is probably a good time to make a point that, you know, intelligent design is not necessarily incompatible. With common ancestry. There are folks within the ID movement who support common ancestry. I think Michael Behe and Michael Denton are some good examples of leading ID theorists who are very sympathetic towards common ancestry. Others would be more critical. I'm thinking of maybe Stephen Meyer or Douglas Axe or Jonathan Wells or myself, Paul Nelson as well, tend to be more critical of common ancestry. So yeah, there's a diversity of views on this in the ID movement. And we've certainly experienced that in the journal club. Emily read a lot of interesting papers on this topic with various arguments. So what was your question again?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point that ID is completely compatible with common ancestry. There's a diversity of views
0: and we should say though that if if it was common ancestry is true we're not talking about an unguided common ancestry, it would be a form of common ancestry that was guided and was not purposeless and just purely mechanistic there was there, there was intelligent design along the way, so it's different from a neo darwinian version of common ancestry, but yet we could still have organisms being genetically related to one another. That's
1: right. Thanks for that distinction. So to go back to my question, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how phylogenetics and the evidence around that does or does not support common ancestry. Just maybe a little teaser for that part of the book.
0: Sure. Yeah. This is really the meatiest part of this chapter, and I won't spoil it too much, But phylogenetics, or the field of systematics, is the methods by which evolutionary biologists construct those phylogenetic trees that you see in textbooks or newspaper articles showing how different organisms are related. And they basically compare the similarities and differences between organisms when they construct those phylogenetic trees. And generally speaking, the more similar two organisms are genetically or morphologically in terms of their body structure then the more closely related they're going to be in one of these phylogenetic trees. And that's fine. You know, we can accept the basic principles of this, but I want to make the point that those phylogenetic trees are not raw data. The raw data is just simply a catalog of differences and similarities between various sets of groups of organisms. The phylogenetic trees are inferences based upon assuming that common ancestry is true. And when you dig into the literature, Emily, which we've been doing, you find out that it is simply an assumption and it is an explicitly stated assumption. Occasionally, they will actually acknowledge the assumptions they make. They assume that common ancestry is true and then they construct these trees. Fine, you're allowed to make assumptions and build models. I don't have a problem with that. Another assumption that's made in building these trees is that similarity is the result of common ancestry. The problem is in these phylogenetic trees, you find a particular statistic called a consistency index. And a consistency index tells basically if you had a data set, to what extent does that data fit with a tree-like pattern? And a a consistency index of one means that all of your data fits a tree-like pattern perfectly. That's good. That's a good indication that a phylogenetic tree is a good description of the relationships between the different entities you're trying to arrange in your data set. That's fine. But we find that sometimes, in fact, very often we get consistency indices, which will be uh, below 0.5, okay? Basically less than 50% of the data fits with a tree-like pattern. What that means essentially is that this assumption that similarity is the result of common ancestry has failed. So if we're making this assumption that similarity is the result of common ancestry, you know, okay, I have two eyes, my cat has two eyes. Therefore, the fact that we have two eyes is the result of the fact that we we inherited genes for two eyes from a common ancestor. That's the argument. Well, that's fine. But what about if there's – sometimes we have organisms that have two eyes where we cannot explain it through common ancestry like an octopus. You know, an octopus has two eyes. But nobody thinks that the common ancestor of humans and octopus had two eyes. In fact, we don't even know if it had eyes at all. So the fact that we have two eyes and an octopus has two eyes – that is said to be the result of convergent evolution. And so that main assumption of tree building, that similarity is the result of common ancestry, just failed. I had to say that it, that similarity is just by chance, that we independently evolved the same trait totally by chance, not because of inheritance from a common ancestor. And you can go on and on and on. There's, In fact, Simon Conway Morris, the uh, famous evolutionary biologist from Oxford University, no friend of intelligent design. But he says, and you re- read his books, every one of them he says the same thing. Convergence is ubiquitous. He loves the word ubiquitous. Convergence is ubiquitous throughout life, okay? He uses this phrase over and over again in his writings. Convergence is ubiquitous. What does that mean? What it means is that biologists were unable to explain the distribution of similarities between traits by appealing to common ancestry. Common ancestry could not explain why these two organisms had similar traits. So their fallback position is convergent evolution. And there are all kinds of other ad hoc explanations that evolutionary biologists will use to explain why organisms have similar traits when common ancestry doesn't work. We have lateral gene transfer. We have coalescence. We have differing rates of evolution, we have gene loss. There's all these different ways that you can explain why similarity appears between organisms when it cannot be explained by common ancestry. The bottom line is the assumptions that are used to build these phylogenetic trees fail constantly. And the reason we know they fail is because the data that we're looking at does not fit a tree-like pattern. The primary problem here is that the data is not fitting a tree And so then biologists will come up with these sort of secondary ad hoc explanations to explain away the data that doesn't fit a tree. That's fine. But a lot of folks who are critical of common ancestry have compared this to what used to go on in astronomy. Now today, everybody knows that the earth orbits the sun. But back in the day, everybody thought the earth was the center of the solar system, right? And that the sun and the planets went around the earth. Well, every once in a while. The planets would, or the, you know, these bodies, celestial bodies that go, we see in the sky, would do something weird. They would go backwards for a few days. And they would call those epicycles. Epicycles are when a planet would not move in a nice perfect sphere, you know, the heavenly spheres. They wouldn't work in a per- go in a perfect sphere. For some reason, they would go backwards for a few days and then they would go forwards again. This totally contradicted the geocentric model of the solar system. And so they would invent these things called epicycles to explain away the bad data. They were able to retain the geocentric model for a long time through these epicycles, okay? And they would say, oh, well, it's no problem. Of course, we know the earth is the center, but we have these epicycles. Well, guess what? The same exact thing is going on with common ancestry today, where we have all this evidence that similarity between organisms is the result of common ancestry, except for when it isn't. And there are a lot of when it isn't. There's, there's like more when it isn't than you could possibly count if you were to start today and count for the rest of your life. So we have these ad hoc explanations, these epicycles, if you will, to explain why the data does not fit with the predictions of common ancestry.
1: So basically what you're saying is the actual data doesn't really fit the common ancestry topology, but everyone's trying just really hard to kind of make it fit because that's the most popular model or whatever. And I think I also heard you say that similarity in design doesn't force common ancestry. And we also know that intelligent agents can create similarity in design. Maybe you can speak to that a little.
0: I didn't say that, but that's a really good point, And I, I should have said that. So is the fact that there's similarity, can that only be explained by common ancestry in those cases where the data does fit a tree? And the answer is no. And that's because intelligent agents will frequently reuse similar designs in different things that they're designing. Okay. So for example, we have cars that use wheels and airplanes that use wheels. We have keyboards that are used in both cell phones and laptops. We, if you're a computer programmer, I did a lot of programming during my PhD, and sometimes I would borrow code. Often I would get permission to borrow code from people because I found coding modules that worked. Computer programmers will frequently reuse code that performs certain functions that they want it to perform in different programs. Okay, because It's a good design principle to reuse parts that work in different designs. And so the fact that we see similarity between different organisms could also reflect common design as much as it might reflect common descent. So I think in many cases, common descent or common design are sort of equally good explanations for why we see similarity. But in other cases, when common ancestry really does not explain the data well, like let's say the eyes of human and octopus, you know, it's not just the fact that we have two eyes that's similar between humans and cephalopods. We actually have the same basic design of the eye. It's a camera eye in both humans and these distantly related type of mollusks, the cephalopod. Totally by chance, supposedly, we just stumbled upon almost the same camera eye design. Obviously, common descent cannot explain it. I think it's better to explain by common design than appealing to basically extreme convergent evolution that we just evolved by chance, these highly complex features completely independently. This is sort of the way the argument goes. There's a lot of data that does not fit with an evolutionary tree. If you want to buy into common descent, that's fine, but you're going to have to accept there's going to be a lot of epicycles. And I think that common descent, as, as a result, is a model that is not explaining the data very well.
1: That was a great summary. Maybe we should talk now a little bit about embryology, like where the evidence regarding that comes down in this debate about common ancestry.
0: Sure, and I'll keep this pretty brief because I know we're going long. In embryology, the idea is that vertebrate embryos start off development very similarly and then they diverge as time goes on. And that's supposed to reflect our common ancestry, that as you go back, We're going back to stages of of development that we shared with other organisms, and so therefore, we're more similar to, say, a fish or a frog in our earlier stages of development than we are in our later stages. Well, the problem is that's simply not true, and you can go through the literature. I document this in my chapter in the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, how vertebrate embryos actually start off very differently, and they remain different throughout their development. We had a debate online a number of years ago with PZ Myers who was we were saying, look, you're acknowledging that vertebrate embryos can vary greatly. He used those exact words. Vertebrate embryos can vary greatly, and there is wide variation in the status of the embryo. But then he tried to explain why those facts don't challenge common ancestry. And this is what he said. He said, I wish I could get that one thought into these guys' heads. Evolutionary theory predicts differences as well as similarities. And when I heard this, I thought, wow. So we have a theory that predicts basically everything. The theory that predicts everything.'" is the theory that predicts nothing. Okay, Evolutionary theory predicts differences as well as similarities. Well, if that's the case, then how can he cite the similarities as evidence for common ancestry, which he did do. And you see this all the time in biology textbooks, the citing of supposed similarities between embryos as evidence for common ancestry. But if PZ Myers sort of let the cat out of the bag when he said evolutionary theory predicts differences as well as similarities, maybe that's true. Once again, though, we're dealing with a theory where its initial predictions were refuted. And so instead, we have to fall to these fallout back positions where we're predicting sort of any data that we find is what we predict, okay? That is not a compelling theory. And I think the common ancestry, you know, in the final analysis is a scientific theory which does make certain predictions. Those predictions have been contradicted by a lot of data, but biologists, evolutionary biologists do not want to let their theory be falsified, so they have then sort of put their theory of common ancestry in an unfalsifiable position through these epicycles that can explain away bad data or by predicting everything, we'll find both similarities and differences. So no matter what we find, our theory is validated. Well, that is not a robust testable theory, and I think that is sort of where common ancestry sits today. It's a theory that at one time is, was refuted by a lot of data and now it's just they're just treating it in an unfalsifiable manner where they're not letting it be actually refuted by the data.
1: So in the final analysis common ancestry then from multiple different perspectives seems to be falling short or be contradicted as you said.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you read your average biology textbook, it will say that there are these multiple lines of evidence that are congruent and supporting common ancestry. And they'll cite the ones we just talked about, Emily, biogeography, paleontology, systematics, phylogenetic trees and homology, and then embryology. And they'll say all these support. Well, so I went through these same lines of evidence – and when you dig into the technical literature, what is the story you find? There's a lot of data that contradicts common ancestry. And I think that's an interesting story that, that deserves to be told and that people ought to hear the other side of the story.
1: Absolutely. And I'm I'm glad that this resource is now available where people can check out more details on each of those different angles too that are often used in support of common ancestry. Casey, I think we're going a little bit long on this podcast. So maybe we can wrap this one up. And if you don't mind staying around for round two, in the next one, we can talk about your chapter on human evolution.
0: That sounds great, Emily. Thank you so
1: much for sharing about the contradictions in these different fields of biogeography, paleontology, and phylogenetics.
0: Well, thank you, Emily. I certainly hope that folks find this uh, book, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, useful. Uh, It is available on Amazon. uh, Shameless plug there. And I I hope that people get a lot out of it.
1: Well, that's a wrap on our discussion of The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith and Casey's chapter on Common Ancestry. I'm Emily Reeves, and you're listening to ID the Future.
0: Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.